This is an audio recording of an award lecture presented at the 2022 Annual Meeting of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Well, I am so honored to be here um, to be able to present this talk as the winner of the Earl and Teresa Stadman um, <clears throat> um, the awardee. And it's such a great feeling to have your colleagues, your peers, recognize the inspiration that has been put into work for 27 years in my lab at Berkeley, which of course is not just recognizing me, it's mostly recognizing all of the graduate students and postdocs and undergrads and staff who've done the work. So this award really is for them. <clears throat> so I'm gonna tell you about telomerase, and in particular, I'll tell you about uh, some of the questions that have been driving Collins Lab telomerase research for the past almost three decades. Telomerase, as many of you know, is a ribonucleoprotein, or RNP, and it's a reverse transcriptase, or RT, and it's specialized for telomeric repeat synthesis at eukaryotic chromosome ends. So this is not a virus. This is an essential reverse transcriptase running against the central dogma. There are two components of the enzyme that are essential for catalytic activity, telomerase reverse transcriptase, or TERT, and a telomerase RNA subunit, which is TER or HTR in human cells. And somehow, this enzyme knows to find chromosome ends, which are single-stranded uh, telomeric repeats, which in human cells are T2AG3, or more properly said, G3T2A. Uh, that's how the chromosome ends, A or G. Um, and you know, how does it do that? And, and how does it know to copy one stretch of RNA within a much larger telomerase RNA subunit? These mysteries really drew me to this enzyme <clears throat> when there were maybe six publications on it. There was an early lesson, just because there's not much literature on it and you can master it, doesn't mean you understand the enzyme. Um, so I wrote my postdoc fellowship proposal on a question, the first question that's here. When telomerase finds a chromosome end and starts elongating it, it doesn't just copy the template once. In fact, copies that template reiteratively, holding on to the same chromosome end. So this processive repeat synthesis, which I thought made it a really simple motor. Actually, that was also wrong, because to split an RNA-DNA duplex, hang on to the RNA and DNA as single-stranded, reposition them, then realign them for another repeat synthesis over and over again is actually thermodynamically really unfavorable. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of extra elaboration that cellular reverse transcriptases like telomerase have over the kind of degenerate retroviral ones. So I wrote that into my postdoc fellowship proposal and eventually solved it, but what I didn't really anticipate were a host of other questions that turned out to be at the heart of understanding telomerase biology. And one of those 
was the fact that you can draw pictures like this with turt and tur together, but if you purify turt and you purify tur and you put them together, they don't reconstitute an active enzyme. So what is the active form of telomerase in cells? Something called the telomerase holoenzyme. And this is something that my lab has chased <clears throat> for uh, many years. So first, a little bit of introduction to TERT and TER. TERT has four domains, a telomerase-specific and terminal domain, and then three domains that form a ring that the Scordolacus lab um, showed using a crystal structure from a flower beetle TERT uh, to encircle an active site cavity. So we had a crystal structure of this cavity and a crystal structure isolated of the 10 domain from the Czech lab. This is what we knew. Telomerase RNAs are even more confusing because across evolution, there's pretty much no homology between them. The really rapid phylogenetic divergence of telomerase RNA as well as TERT and TERT-TER interaction. So my lab uh, has used two model systems mainly. The first is single-celled ciliate-friendly pond scum, tetrahymena, and uh, the awesome power of molecular genetics in tetrahymena helped us find telomerase holoenzyme subunits. And with 159 nucleotide telomerase RNA, there turned out to be nine proteins associated to this that were responsible for folding the RNA, protecting its three prime end, for recruiting the complex to telomeres, and for coordinating not just single-strand synthesis at a telomere, but coordinating the second-strand synthesis that's necessary for duplex DNA production. I'm not going to talk about that. What we learned from this model system, we um, used in order to work through the human telomerase holoenzyme. So you can see that the human RNA at 451 nucleotides is much larger. It has no obvious reason to have the three prime end it has. It was clear there had to be some kind of processing that was unknown. And in addition to TERT, what else would it have? It didn't have the tetrahymena proteins. The RNA structure is different. So one thing we knew uh, is that in addition to TERT, because TERT and TER alone don't reconstitute an RNP, there needed to be in cells a stepwise hierarchical RNP biogenesis pathway. You can think ribosome assembly here, where you have to add protein A, fold RNA bit B, before you add protein C, fold RNA bit D, or like an IKEA bureau, right? If you forget to do step B, you get to the end and the bureau falls apart. And um, this you know, is a really interesting theme of how something like telomerase may resemble a catalytic RNA, RNB, like a ribozyme, like a ribosome. Uh, and in that work, the question that we came to answer, what is a telomerase holoenzyme? And graduate students in the lab, I will say, did this work. Jay Mitchell, Dragony Fu, Emily Egan, Alex Sexton, and Alex Wu, in turn, handed each other this project and um, had a model based on a lot of biochemistry and um, some reconstitution attempts in cells. That there was a mature human telomerase RNA, one tert molecule binding two very physically 
different sites on the RNA, and also a bunch of proteins that for now are just in green and yellow that were for RNA stability and RNA localization. And the curious thing is that these subunits weren't specific to telomerase. We found them first with telomerase. But in fact, they're shared with a large family of other nuclear, nucleolar, and in fact, whole body associated RNPs that, uh, that catalyze, guide site-specific modification of other RNAs, like snRNAs and ribosomal RNAs. And so um, this was a bit controversial. The telomerase should share subunits with such things as SNORNAs, um, and many people in the field had different models. Models differed by whether they were one or two TERTs, one or two HDRs, all four of the proteins that interact with HACA RNAs, Discarin, NHP2, NOP10, and GAR1, or just maybe Discarin alone, and whether there were one set of these proteins or two sets. And so, um, controversy raged, and the problem with all of the assays, including the previous assays in my lab, had been that we were looking at a bulk population of complexes and assuming that the average properties of an RNP were the active RNP. What Alex Wu decided to do was use single molecule techniques to define TERT content and telomerase activity of individual RNPs. And the way he did that, he set up a collaboration with a graduate student in the lab of my colleague, Amit Yildiz, and um, used TERF, total internal refraction microscopy, fluorescence microscopy, to um, immobilize, in fact, individual RNPs on a cover slip and ask them how many TERTs they have and are you active. <laughs> and so the way he did this was to use a single-stranded DNA with a three-prime telomeric repeat sequence um, immobilized to a cover slip, and he labeled the tert molecules of complexes he'd reconstituted in cells or reconstituted in vitro, purified either by the protein or by the RNA subunit, and the way he did the labeling was a cool tag that Chris, Wal Chris Walsh's lab had developed that you can also just get from NEB now. Uh, and this tag, ACP or MCP, can allow you orthogonal labeling, if you want, of um, proteins with your fluorophore of choice, or biotin, or whatever else you want. And um, it's an enzyme reaction, ACP or SFP synthase, will put um, an R group, in our case, Psi3 and Psi5, um, on a linker arm attached to the ACP or MCP tag fused to your protein. So in this way, um, you could label with anything you wanted after this was purified. And so um, he did two strategies of, of this sort of tert counting approach, and I'll just tell you one. So you were constituted in cells and also in vitro, complexes that were functional, he knew they were functional, he could knock out the endogenous TERT, for example, and know that his MCP or ACP tagged protein was capable of maintaining telomeres. And after he purified, he could label the MCP tag with, for example, a Psi5 dye, or Psi3, and then bind these complexes to the cover slip, 
And to ask how many charts were in each complex, in, in this approach, you can just count how many molecules of Psi 5 there are by photobleaching. So some data would look something like this. Uh, if, a, if a complex had one subunit of TERT, there would be one photobleaching event. You can see about two-thirds of the way through this time trace. Um, and then uh, dark. However, if there were two TERTs, you'd see the second kind of trace, where stochastically, one TERT would photobleach, and then later, another TERT would photobleach. So you'd see two steps of photobleaching. And in fact, what he saw <laughs> were mostly complexes with one step of photobleaching, but also complexes with two steps of photobleaching, and some with multiple, multiple steps of photobleaching. It's like, great. Ah. And this was true no matter how he purified, whether a flag tagged on TERT or an oligo antisense to the template um, to purify RNPs. And it was also true whether he reconstituted telomerase holo enzyme in 293T cells or reconstituted a minimally active RNP in rabbit reticulocyte lysate using all the chaperones in that lysate to bypass all of the other proteins that are required in cells for telomerase RNP biogenesis. So now he's looking at this and he's thinking, hmm, well, I have to figure out which ones of those are active. And to do this, he took advantage of a property of telomerase that had been reported early on, 20 years ago by now, that when telomerase interacts with DNA, if the strand of DNA has a three prime end with a permutation of telomeric repeat that reflects binding to the middle of the template, that interaction is very tight. The half-life, the dissociation of that is extremely slow, but if telomerase is interacting with the DNA, where, in fact, it's copied the whole template, now it's much less tightly bound. And in fact, it can have a half-life of 15 minutes at room temperature. So what Alex did was immobilize the telomerase using the permutation of telomeric repeat with high binding affinity, wash, 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 image. But then he gave it nucleotides just nucleotides enough to elongate to the position of the permutation of telomeric repeat with the least affinity of TERT to DNA. And in that manner, any RNP that was active should self-elute <laughs> off the cover slip. So this is great. And he did this, and he found a result that supported the Collins Lab model. What you can see here is that without DNTPs, most of the complexes had a single tert in the dark bar. Some had two in the light gray bar, and some had many. <laughs> if he then took the exact same cover slip and just put DTTP and DATP in there, and then imaged again 15 minutes later, 30 minutes later, None of the complexes with two turts or three turts or four turts had eluded, but many of the complexes with a single tert had. And in fact, the number, the reduction there in the number of those spots paralleled exactly what he would predict from the measured half-life of telomerase bound to the permutation of telomeric DNA that he had created on the cover slip. And other studies in our lab and in a 
former postdoc's lab um, with reconstituted enzyme showed that also there was one HDR. So one TERT and one HDR. So we get to this, back to this model, um, and we can say, all right, well, the active ones have one TERT and one HDR. But what about these other subunits? And uh, what are they? And um, how many are they? And the problem here was that depending on how the enzyme had been purified, and depending on who did the mass spec or other subunit analysis strategies, there were different answers. And again, huge controversy. But now, with Alex's um, observation, that in fact, in the cells in particular, there's a heterogeneous collection of these complexes. In or, what you want to ask is, what's the composition of only the active ones? And using tricks um, based on a lot of imaging that Alex had done, Kelly Nguyen, a postdoc who was joint with my colleague Evan Nogales, uh, joined the lab and decided to do a cryo-EM structure of active telomerase holoenzyme. She spent quite a while trying many different purifications to make sure that her enzyme was homogeneously active. And um, negative stain, and then cryo-EM. And what I'm showing you here are just some 2D class averages from cryo-EM to illustrate a point, which is that what she saw for telomerase holoenzyme was a two-lobed structure, but the two lobes were flexible relative to each other. So you can see if you align on the bottom lobe, the top lobe gets fuzzy. If you align on the top lobe, the bottom lobe gets fuzzy. So this complicates the cryo-EM, but Eva and Kelly uh, were no strangers to cryo-EM, amazing experts, and so they could, um, they could manage this and come up with, at first, a lower resolution map of uh, human telomerase holoenzyme. So what cryoium gives you is density. And what Kelly could do was fit the density with structures of the archaeal equivalents of those proteins that were in green, the HACA proteins, and with the flower beetle tert, and with the tetrahymenotend domain, and with some of the RNA structures that have been solved as individual motifs by NMR. And in doing this, she could very clearly reconstruct these two lobes that were bridged by RNA. And what we'll call the top lobe here had two sets of all four HACA proteins, a TCAB1 molecule that's for localization, I'm gonna come back to these again and explain what they are, and then a second lobe that was the catalytic core with TERT and all the motifs of TER that we knew from in vitro reconstitutions and in vivo reconstitutions were critical for activity. So there was one HDR, one TERT, two sets of all four HACA proteins, and one TCAB1, and a little bit of unfit density you can try to predict where that is, although it's not fair because I'm sort of showing you not the best orientation to see that. Uh, and uh, so that, of course, made Kelly want to get higher resolution structure 
so that instead of fitting previously determined structures, she could fit amino acid sequence and nucleic acid sequence into the density. But first I'm gonna point out something that um, again harks back to this question of, of how telomerase assembles. It needs help. <laughs> and so I had been predicting, you know, sort of the principles of ribosome biogenesis. And in fact, the two lobes have very different principles of RNP assembly. So telomerase has got sort of a hybrid identity between a ribosome and RNPs where the protein structure determines RNA fold instead of RNA structure determining protein architecture. So in the top lobe, the HACA lobe, it's a rigid protein scaffold that's putting the RNA motifs that those proteins bind in place. Whereas in the catalytic core lobe, in fact, it's a rigid RNA scaffold that completely encases the protein. And this was revealing because now we could explain why these have to co-fold. If you give already folded telomerase RNA to already folded TERT, how is the RNA supposed to get around it? It actually can't. You can look at it all you want. So there has to be a stepwise pathway so that the RNA can not just bind TERT, but put the template through the active site. So continuing this work, Kelly, um, in her own lab at uh, the LMB in UK, did a lot more uh, particle collection and solved a much higher resolution structure in 2021. And with this higher resolution structure, there were a couple things apparent. <clears throat> and at this point now, we could compare to our tetrahymena telomerase holoenzyme structures that we had done by cryoman cryom in collaboration with Julie Fagan at UCLA, who had done a sabbatical in my lab. And what Kelly found is that the density that hadn't been fit in the earlier low-resolution structure, now she could tell what was in there because she could see uh, it at high resolution enough to fit um, any, pro any protein that was out there, see, if, see what fit. And what it turned out to be was a histone H2A, H2B dimer. You can see that in purple. Um, just snuggling up against the RNA, bound to RNA, duplex RNA, bound to actually a very convoluted activity motif. And by interaction with H2A and H2B, the RNA gains a conformation that, that activates TERT instead of just binding TERT again. So you have to have the right fold in order to activate the enzyme, not just interact with the enzyme. And so all told here, the human telomerase holoenzyme, like the tetrahymena, had a lot of proteins. In human telomerase holoenzyme example, it's 12 subunits if you count them up. And in fact, for biological activity, it requires two more proteins that live on the telomere. What do all these proteins do? So as in the case of tetrahymena, most of them, in fact, are for folding the RNA and protecting the RNA's biological stability. But some other proteins were for recruiting telomerase to a telomere and for coupling it to passage of the replication fork. 
so that H2A, H2B solved a really long-standing mystery in the field of how telomerase manages to get recruited to telomeres just after they're replicating. It's got a tiny window of time when the telomere is accessible to it. And that H2A, H2B has um, available the interaction surface for an H3, H4 tetramer. And those of you out there teach DNA replication or have had DNA replication, you've already put this in your head. Behind the replication fork, uh, a bunch of histone chaperone machinery tosses an H3, H4 tetramer, which then gets to H2A, H2B dimers. So where in the cell is there H3, H4 tetramer on DNA? Only right behind the replication fork. So this is a way to make sure that um, telomerase regulation is coupled to telomere synthesis. But there were briefly um, just two other things that the high-resolution structure really confirmed. Both structures, in fact, gave us a new view into this HACA lobe. So what, what are these things? These HACA RNPs are um, the RNPs that make pseudouridine modifications in ribosomal RNA. And some of those uh, proteins are mutant in the disease dyskeratosis congenita, which manifests with bone marrow failure. And early on, we had found in cells from patients with this disease that um, their telomerase levels were very low, but their HACA snow RNA and scar RNA levels were fine. And Kelly's structure explained exactly why that is true, why those mutations selectively interfere with telomerase assembly. I'll direct you to both of those papers to read that. The other thing that this uh, structure explained is harking back to my very first question. I said, how can telomerase do processive repeat synthesis when it has to split the DNA and RNA, hold on to them, reposition them, and make another repeat? And the answer is that telomerase, unlike other reverse transcriptases, doesn't bind the duplex part of its substrate. In fact, what it's binding are the single-strand parts of the template and the single-strand parts of the DNA. And there's a splitter that makes sure that newly synthesized DNA never accumulates as a long hybrid. Uh, and again, I'll point you to this paper um, to look at this. So I just, in the end here, want to show you uh, the people whose work I've talked about, apologies to all my labites who have done equally awesome work um, that I didn't have time to talk about. Alex is now a postdoc in Johannes Walter's lab uh, at Harvard Medical School. If any of you are hiring, uh, snap him up. He does interstrand crosslink repair um, mechanism. Kelly on the bottom, uh, in the middle of that picture, is. Uh, in the UK at LMB with her own lab. If you want to do cryo-EM of telomerase or telomer complexes, definitely give her a ring. And Jane, on the right, um, uh, was an undergrad in the lab who became a technician who helped them both. I have to give a shout out to my UC Berkeley colleagues and to my funding um, agencies. And with that, I will take your questions. We hope you have enjoyed this lecture. It was recorded in April 2022 in Philadelphia at the ASBMB annual meeting. 
held in conjunction for the final time with the Experimental Biology Conference. In 2023, the ASBNB annual meeting will be held in Seattle. Learn more at discoverbnb.asbnb.org.